Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, experiences, reflections, and ideas that never quite get represented in this way in standard academic meetings and publications. I'm Kathy Pike, professor of psychology and clinical psychologist at Columbia University. I'm the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders, and I'm pleased to be collaborating with multiple community organizations, universities, and professional organizations on this series. Our goal is to capture the narrative history of eating disorders as it's never quite been heard before. We hope that our conversations will bring insights and guidance that will inspire new and next generations of leaders in the field. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Eva Trujillo. Dr. Trujillo founded and is the executive director of Comenzar de Nuevo, a nonprofit organization recognized throughout Latin America that supports the prevention, teaching, research, advocacy, and treatment of eating disorders at all levels of care. Dr. Trujillo established this clinical program of the highest international standards, and her group receives an average of 400 first-time patients annually from 11 countries and 27 states in Mexico. She's got lots of experience to share with us. Dr. Trujillo is a member of the Academy for Eating Disorders. She served on the board of directors for nine years and president in 2016-2017. Welcome, Dr. Trujillo. Thank you, Kathy. Very honored and privileged to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So, uh, Dr. Trujillo, let's start at the beginning. If you could share with me your earliest experiences uh, when you started to think, hey, I might get into this field of eating disorders. How did that happen? Actually, um, my background is I'm a pediatrician and I was interested in adolescent medicine. So I did that in the United States. And when I come back to Mexico, I was only two months in the country when I was contacted by a very uh, well-known family in my community who had a daughter who was suffering from anorexia nervosa. So uh, they contacted me through the same uh, hospital where I was in Boston because they called that hospital and that hospital said, oh, you know, one of our fellows just came back So why, in your city, so why don't you contact her? So they contacted me and I went to visit her to the hospital. And, you know, at that time, we didn't know anything. Actually, I didn't see anything about eating disorders in my whole career or pediatrician career. So when I I, I did, and I never, I, I never knew about eating disorders until I got into adolescent medicine. So when I came back, I saw her, and I started working with the family. And once she was better, I told the family, you know, we need to decide where she's gonna go because she cannot stay here in Mexico. I don't have a treatment team. I told them how we need to. At that time, you know. 30 years ago, we said, oh, how do we treat patients with eating disorders? So we need, we knew it has to be multidisciplinary at that time. So I need a team. You will have to go to the United States. So I contacted them with people I knew in the United States, and they went to the United States for treatment. While she was in treatment, she said in treatment, 
She stayed in a hospital in the United States until she turned 11 years old. During that time, I prepared myself and I prepared a team of people in Mexico to receive them receive her when she come back because we didn't know what was going to happen at that time. So I start interviewing people who would be interested in the field. And that's when I went deeply into the field. Actually, that's the time when I discovered the Academy for Eating Disorders. And uh-huh. I went to my first meeting. It was 1995, I guess, 1996, the most, the first uh, Academy for Eating Disorders uh, conference that I uh, that I went to. And I started reading a lot about this and I started contacting people. And, you know, I have to say this, the field has been so open to help people like me, you know, those big names like you and many people, many colleagues we have in the field. I I didn't know them. And I, at that time, I called them, some of them, mm-hmm. went to visit them. And I said, you know, we need this in Mexico. Mexico, what can I do? How can you help me? And every single person opened me the doors. Everyone, everyone told me, what do you need? How can I help you? So that's the way we, we basically, that's the way we started. And this was because I was preparing something, something for this girl. But while she was in the United States almost a year, a lot of people who was friends of this family started contacting me. So mm-hmm. by the end of the year, I sit down with these parents and I said, okay, in this year, I got, I was contacted by 38 families. Mm-hmm. And, and this was word of mouth. And I mm-hmm. said, well, they cannot afford to go to the United States just like you did. So Either you tell me what to do and we formalize this or just let me be a regular pediatrician. (laughs) (laughs) Uh I don't know what to do with them because they come to me and I said, okay, you have anorexia. Your daughter has anorexia. Now what? What's what's next? Um, So that can be be a pretty daunting situation to be a healthcare provider, to know that you don't have the services that are needed for someone who is in a compromised state like acute anorexia nervosa. What were the steps that you took in terms of setting up the programs there? Well, we, the three of us, the parents of this girl and myself, we decided to formalize this. So the first thing we did is we decided to do an organization. Mm -hmm. And once we decided, we said it was going to be nonprofit because there was so many misinformation, ignorance, everything about this. And the very, very few units, I think there were only one or two in the big hospitals in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. They were not working the way I learned in the States. So I decided that we were going to start something here in Monterrey, Mexico, which Mm -hmm. is at the north of the country. So that's that's why we started. And after that, it, come, it came a lot of, of learning, a lot of uh, interviewing people, um, making people, you know, join us and buy our, our passion for this, you know. Mm-hmm. And we divided our work in funding for mm-hmm. treatments and then and treatment. So the mother of this thought of this um uh, of this girl who is a very well-known person in the community, she started working in, in helping me to uh, to get funds 
So we mm -hmm. can do a scholarship fund to treat people. And I did all the, uh, you know, uh, all the operative things. I, I start uh, doing programs, uh, finding out what to what to bring to Mexico, how to train the professionals we had with us because none of them knew anything about eating disorders. Even I got very seasoned people with us, you know, psychiatrists who had been a psychiatrist for more than a decade, people who has been working in their field for a long time, and they didn't know anything about eating disorders. So we start from the very, very, very beginning to so start with everyone. So Eva, you reached out to the global community, you, a lot of uh, colleagues in North America and Europe who could provide materials to you in English. You translate these materials brings us to another question, which is one that you've spoken about and written about and, and the idea of culture and eating disorders. And, and what do we observe and how do we adapt the research and the clinical care for various cultural contexts? Can you share with us a little bit of any observations you have of what adaptations you needed to bring to the the research or the clinical care that you were providing in Mexico? Yes. Um, at the beginning, when we brought the evidence-based treatments, I thought we were going to have to do a lot of adaptations to our culture. But to be honest, on the end, uh, and after all these years, I can tell you that we didn't have to do a lot of adaptations, for example, to CBT in order to see it be effective in our population. Mm -hmm. Actually, I would tell you that uh, from my point of view, it's not a decisive factor, the adaptations. We can do the CBT just as it's written here in Latin America. And mm -hmm. well, unfortunately, we don't have money for RCT, so we have not, uh, we cannot prove it works here, but I can tell you from the clinical uh, point of view that it works. I can tell you that we have seen that and we have outcome, um, outcome measures and we know it is working with our patients. So Eva, you observe that cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders translates pretty readily in your cultural context and that family-based treatments need some adaptation to understand the, the Mexican family um, and the, the, the extended family networks that are common in Mexico. But it's very difficult to run randomized controlled trials in the context that you are describing where resources are dedicated to clinical care, but there's not a system in place for extensive randomized controlled trials. You shared with me the idea that in your work in in demonstrating evidence that you have shifted your focus from trying to launch a randomized controlled trial to using an efficacy uh, based model or an idea that you're going to look at effectiveness studies. How effective are these treatments? in Mexico compared to the United States and use US data as a comparison. Can you elaborate on that a bit more, how you have how you work with the reality of the resources 
to continue to contribute real data to the effectiveness of these treatments? Yes, sure. Uh, well, I would say that I use what I call the real world data because that's what we do. You know, it's uh, mm -hmm. we cannot afford to have RCTs. We don't have not not the human or mon or or financial resources to do it. So what we do is we measure outcomes, uh, and and with that we try to compare how with the results that we read in the RCTs and from our uh, experience and our point of view, this practical da data supports that the evidence-based treatments are working in our in our communities in our population i think it it gives us a lot of um, advantages also because we don't need a period uh, recruitment uh, stage which is i know is very long for rcts mm -hmm. and uh, because we have all the patients here we can review medical records our our results are mainly the same things we read that happens in RCTs. The randomized control trial is the gold standard for evidence. At this stage in the evolution of our knowledge base for eating disorders, we have randomized controlled trials for CBT, for family-based therapy, for other evidence-based interventions. Does the Do the data that we have from the randomized controlled trials, do they translate to our real world circumstances. Can you share with us what you've seen in terms of those data as you describe your outcomes in the real world to the historical data of the randomized control trial? Well, yes. First off, from my point of view, I don't think that real world research, as you said it, that I like that, uh, an RCT should be competitive. I mean, I think they should be I think we should see them as complementary, one to each other, you know. Um, what we see is that our retention, for example, with evidence-based treatment is in uh, RCTs, you know, we have retentions over 80% of our patients. In family-based treatment, we get to, to the you know, to the goals of weight and, and, and recovery goals, uh, physical recovery goals as, uh, as they are described in the RCTs that have been done. And our follow-up for these patients that can be a long follow-up because it's, for us, it's very easy to continue a follow-up for these patients. It's uh, their, their maintenance in, in the goals is as, just as it has been reported in the short follow-ups that are in some RCTs, you know. So I know that the same thing happens in other countries that doesn't have the funding for RCTs. So I think, and all the clinicians I know in Latin America, they are doing what they can with what they have. So mm -hmm. I think that uh, we should take what, what is the best thing from the RCT and implement it in our countries and do this and report this uh, real world research. So, so basically in the, in the future, maybe had compares, comparisons of what we are getting with this outcome data and what they got in the labs. You know, I, I know these are only observations and we need to write them, but uh, I don't see very impacting factors 
that change the way we implement and that change the results that are gotten in the RCTs besides the what we do in the in the real world. Mm-hmm. Terrific. So, Eva, in terms of bringing these evidence-based treatments to Mexico, you you know the culture and community very well and can make the adaptations that you described, for example, in understanding how family systems work in Mexico that might be different from North American family from a different part of the world. When you are bringing a treatment that was developed in one part of the world to a, to a different part of the world, can you talk about the knowledge that that person needs to have? I'm thinking, you know Mexico so well. You know the Mexican culture. What are the things that in your experience are really important from a cultural perspective to make these treatments authentic and acceptable in different cultural contexts? You know, I think that uh, for our therapies, and actually this is a question I ask all the therapies that I recruit for my organization because they're, they come from different backgrounds not related to behavioral or cognitive behavioral uh, backgrounds. So first thing I ask is, are you willing to change, you know, your, your, your framework of how you were trained in psychotherapy? Um, most, most psychologists and most therapists, psychiatrists, in Mexico are trained in in a psychodynamic psychoanalytic background. So for some of them, it's very difficult to make this change. And this is something that when, when you are thinking into going into the field of eating disorders and you want to do evidence-based treatments, you need to be aware of this and, and be willing to be open to change to learn new things, you know? So this is something I always ask when I recruit uh, professionals. In the cultural uh, uh, point of view, also, if they are willing to work with the families, because many therapists are not willing to work with the families. They want to work only with the patients. So I tell them that in my organization, we need to work with families along with the patients. So they they need to be willing to do that too. Uh, those are like the big um, characteristics I will ask a professional that will join my team. And of course, I want people who wants to learn, who is passionate about this field, who is uh, curious about this field. I think that uh, curiosity take me where I am because I am always asking myself why and why is this happening and why is this patient feeling like this and why do they react like this imagine that I'm a doctor and I I was a pediatrician so I had to walk all this uh, by myself and supported by so many wonderful colleagues I found in in the academy for eating disorders and in many other places and um 
and I have to learn all this. And, and I think that my curiosity asking all the time, why, why is this happening? Uh, what can we do? Oh, I went to the United States and I saw this in the conference. How can we adapt that in Mexico? What can we, how can we bring it here? I think that I, I asked that to my colleagues in here. I asked them to be like that so we can improve the, the approaches we give to our patients. Eva, could you share with us a bit about how the field of eating disorders is evolving in Latin America? You are based in Monterrey in Mexico. Uh, My understanding is that you've conducted a lot of training for individuals across Latin America to build capacity and evidence-based treatments. Tell me about that. Well, the field is in Latin America is growing a lot. Uh, we, as in other uh, high-income countries and everywhere, we after pandemic, we're seeing uh, that uh, we double consultations and visits to the hospital. So we had been running to uh, increase our professionals. What we have done a, a lot is we, uh, before pandemic, we used to go to some countries and, and train people over there and make sure that they start training other people. And just to have an idea how much we had grown, the first eating disorder conference that I went, I was the only Latino, the only one. And it kept like that for many, many years. And I can tell you that because I always look for somebody from Latin America and I never find anyone. So after many, many, many years of attending the the ICD, then people from other parts of of Latin America start going. And I can tell you that before pandemic, we used to have at least a hundred people from Latin America in the ICD conference. So mm-hmm. that's how much we had grown in the years. And with the pandemic, for example, now we have the, the Hispano Latino American chapter. So now we have uh, people, we have our own conference supported by the Academy for Eating Disorders. And we have a, a, a meeting at the annual conference, whatever it is on, like this year in, in DC, we're going to have our meeting. We have our own board through this chapter. We do uh, trainings in different countries and we we try to do our conference in different countries. And usually the attendance to that conference is people from the country, you know, uh, probably most of the attendees will be people who is from that country. So that's the way we want to disseminate and we try to disseminate. And many of our colleagues in Latin America are scholars in universities. So now we are working a lot to improve the 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 teaching in universities about eating disorders. So we had advanced a lot from my point of view with the with the resources we have and the help of everyone because every we do as you do and as many of us do we have we do a lot of voluntary work to support the advance of the of the field you know and and i had been so lucky to find people who uh, share my ideas and share my passion on this field and um, that has helped a lot at this moment 
I can tell you that we still have countries in Latin America with without any specialists in eating disorders. But also I can tell you that we have started training in those patients, general mm -hmm. practitioners and therapists, so they can start a movement in their countries. You talk about the tremendous growth of capacity and understanding about eating disorders in Latin America. As you have been really a leader in the region and globally focused on this idea that eating disorders occur around the world, you're an expert around eating disorders in Latin America, South America. Can you share with us uh, something that has surprised you that you didn't think would be the case in your observation of eating disorders or observations of the field? Well, to be honest, when I started, I thought that adapting evidence-based treatments was going to be, I was going to find a lot of differences from what I learned in, in the United States. And it didn't happen. Actually, it didn't happen. It's, uh, we don't need to do that much adaptations. We don't need the core issues from, from the, the evidence-based treatments. We can do them here. I didn't find that big difference. And not only in Latin America, when I had the honor to be the president of the Academy for Eating Disorders, I put a lot of efforts to globalize the organization. So I, I was uh, lucky enough to meet people from Middle East, from Asia. We started the chapters for those countries in the AD. And it's happening the same thing in old countries. I mean, they, they do the evidence-based treatments, they don't have RCTs, and they are finding the same results. So that's that's my main surprise because I was sure I was going to find something different, and I didn't. And I, I don't think the adaptations, the cultural adaptations of a therapy are a decisive factor to impact the effectiveness in Latin America or in any, in any other countries. That's my point of view. Your observation here, Eva, I think is quite, is a big idea because it really is a powerful statement to say that the core principles of evidence-based treatments readily translate and that you've come to the conclusion that what you need to do in Mexico is have clinicians who are culturally sensitive, have clinicians who understand the cultural context, but who are ready to implement the evidence-based treatment where you've been able to collect data to say when they're well-trained, they can deliver this treatment and we can get good results and we can demonstrate that with these effectiveness studies. So that's that's pretty powerful. The It seems to me that a really important piece of that is the idea that the clinicians need to understand the cultural context. It's really interesting to me that in some ways, the biggest adaptation that you're describing is on the clinician's part to grow in their models, their psychotherapy models, so that they can deliver the evidence-based treatment with fidelity. Yes, 
I couldn't put it in better words than you, that what that what you just said. Yes, that's exactly the idea. Yeah, and so this is really interesting. So when we think about, you know, we're always talking about shortage of resources. What I'm hearing you say is that as a leader in your country, in your region, if you had a million dollars, you it doesn't sound like you feel the need to run an RCT, but instead it sounds like you would potentially spend those resources building capacity and continuing to build data collection capacity so you can demonstrate these treatments are working. Is that correct? Or what would you do with a million dollars or many millions of dollars? I will definitely do what you're saying. I will I will be sure to continue advancing in building capacity in professionals so we can reach more people because the need is there and we and we have to find ways to help them. And to be honest, I told you, um, if I had to run an RCT, I will only run it just to make sure that that others believe that what we are doing is it's uh, working, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, I um, I I will spend most of the money in implementing, uh, in building capacity, implementing treatments over here. Mm-hmm. So that's a really thought-provoking position. And I think it's one for us as a field. And as we think about global mental health broadly, the ideas of implementation and dissemination, how do we most efficiently leverage the RCTs in different contexts or translate RCTs, translate the learning of RCTs in different contexts? And what I'm hearing from you is you're urging us to think about a model where the data from the RCT should be grounds for then conducting demonstration studies or effectiveness studies that are more realistic and real world in the real world context of uh, countries like Mexico. Yes, uh, definitely. I, I I would love um, our field to find this model. On I am convinced that if we have well-trained therapists in the evidence-based treatment, they will work exactly the same here. Mm-hmm. I am convinced about that. I have seen it. So, mm-hmm. of course, we have uh, some patients that we have to do some specific adaptations because these are very indigenous people or people who come from very, very far away. But in the in, in most of the patients we see from all, all Latin America, if we have well-trained therapies, we can implement the evidence-based treatments, mostly as they are. Fantastic. So uh, as we wrap up, Eva, I'm wondering if you can, if you have thoughts, you have a ideas for the next generation of researchers and clinicians, what would you hope for them and what would you urge them to focus on? Well, um, before wrapping up, I want to say thank you. I Uh I want to say thank you to the field. 
I feel privileged that I was born in the field at the time I was born because I had the opportunity to be mentored and supported by many, many people like you, Kathy. You had helped me a lot too. So um, I, I don't want to mention anyone because there are so many, but uh, uh-huh. they know who they are. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, they, they are good friends now and they have supported me a lot and they had supported the Latino community because I am just a messenger, you know, and I always bring everything they tell me, I bring it to my community. So that's the first thing I want to say before we wrap up. What would I say to new professionals and researchers? We still need a lot uh, way to go to learn, to, to discover, to, so we can help better our patients, our families, our to advance our field. So never give up. I have found a lot of obstacles in the way for being a woman, for being, <laughs> for not being a psychiatrist, for not being, uh, you know, so many, so many things. And I never gave up. And we have, we have done. I am very proud to say we have done a lot of things and I hope this legacy will continue with new professionals and that they will continue doing this for our community and abroad because I know there are other communities outside from the high income countries that need to follow same steps to develop, um, you know, to build uh, things and build capacity in their professionals. And, and I hope that this continues because, you know, I don't have to tell you how many patients we need to help and, and the more we can get, the more, the better for the world. So that's just a small seed for a better world for everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Trujillo, for joining us today. Eva, it's wonderful talking with you and thank you for the work you're doing. No, thank you, Kathy.